Today is Tuesday, February 13th, 2024. I'm David Berlin, and this is the Blockchain Journal podcast. And today, my guest is Daniela Barbosa. She is the executive director of the Hyperledger Foundation. And it's been about a year, maybe a little bit more, since I last spoke with her in Davos, Switzerland, at the World Economic Forum. So I thought it would be fun to catch up with her, learn a little bit more about what she's been doing in that last year, what the Hyperledger Foundation is up to, and uh, even just get a reminder about what it is the Hyperledger Foundation does. So, Daniela, welcome to the uh, Blockchain Journal podcast. Hey, David. Thank you for having us on again. It's uh, great to see a lot of the success and the content and really the stories that you've been building in the uh, in the industry. So thank you. Thank you. I, and uh, we hope to tell a little bit about the Hyperledger story today. And for those of you who are watching, by the way, you're going to see a ton of QR codes. Uh, you've probably seen them in the lower thirds, like below my, uh, my photo and my picture and all that, below Daniela. But at the end, we will also put some QR codes up so you can not only find both of us on our various social networks, but you can also use those QR codes to find where Blockchain Journal is and where the Hyperledger Foundation is and so on. So anyway, let's get started. What is the Hyperledger Foundation? All right. Well, you know, the Hyperledger Foundation, uh, you know, since 2016, we've been the home for blockchain and blockchain related projects at the Linux Foundation. So for those of you who don't know the Linux Foundation, you know, essentially for over the last 25 years, Linux Foundation has been the home for the most, I would say, the most important open source projects in the world. Obviously, our own namesake, the Linux kernel, um, mm -hmm. but also projects like under cloud native computing with Kubernetes, um, automotive grade Linux that's driving a lot of uh, uh, the electronics and the operations operating system in cars, um, and even, you know, in the AI space with uh, PyTorch as part of uh, LF data and AI. So the goal at the Linux Foundation is to really bring the technologies that want to be openly developed and openly governed that are going to be critical in infrastructure. And, you know, I would say, David, pretty much every piece of technology that you've touched today has probably some piece of Linux foundation code, open source code, as an underlining uh, piece of that. There's no question about that. Mm -hmm. I, I, I am totally aware of that, and I can't say how appreciative I am of that. And I, I want to kind of connect open source to how blockchain works a little bit later and just get your feedback on that. But let's keep it. going about the Hyperledger yeah. Foundation. So in 2016, you know, a bunch of large enterprises, uh, banks, uh, technology players came together and said, hey, you know, this is interesting. This blockchain technology, decentralized technologies or distributed ledger technology is interesting. And we want to collaborate on building these things, these technologies collaboratively, right? Um, and what you get when you do open source and open development, you get accelerated, you know, product timelines, essentially, right? You're collaborating on the things that need to be built together. Um, so in 2016, uh, the project that was called the Hyperledger project at the time was formed. Um, in 2016, in uh, 2016, one of our first projects was Hyperledger Fabric, uh, followed by Hyperledger Sawtooth, Eroja, and Explorer just in that first year alone. And what we learned as a community was that the enterprises were very interested in the technology of blockchain, not the speculation of Bitcoin. And even at the time, you know, the Ethereum mainnet had just launched, you know, the year before, um, but the technology, seeing that the technologies itself, and you'll hear me keep, keep going back to this, or bring, could bring efficiencies to market, right? Could bring, you know, 24 seven liquidity to market, could bring uh, decentralized identity and privacy to the market. Um, so in 2015, the Hyperledger project at the time was formed. And throughout the last, we're just celebrating our eighth year anniversary this year, we've really 
nurtured and recruited and accepted what I think are some of the most important, will be the most important open source projects um, that enterprises, that governments, and essentially that you know new financial infrastructure, for example, is being built on. So we're very proud of what we've built over the last eight years. And the market has changed. And I'm sure, David, you and I have talked about this before, and we'll talk about it today. The market has changed at what blockchain or distributed ledger technologies or decentralized technologies are needed in the enterprise today, even very differently than what everyone thought was going to happen in 2015 and 2016. So if you look at the Hyperledger Foundation, our timeline of projects and the community members that have come to join us, it really matches where the enterprise is going with these technologies. Um, and for that, you know, in 2021, we rebranded to the Hyperledger Foundation because we are a true umbrella of multiple projects, multiple communities that ultimately are working with the key thing, which is open source, open development, and open governance um, in the Hyperledger Foundation umbrella. So I'm excited to, uh, to give you some of those updates today. Great overview. Uh, it, would you say Fabric is the flagship of the, the whole portfolio or... Uh, is it more kind of even balanced across all the different projects? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if you and I were speaking in 2017, 2018, I would say definitely Fabric was the key. And it happens to be Hyperledger Fabric is still the most adopted permission distributed ledger uh, platform in, in the marketplace. And we have, you know, uh, data that you know proves that. And you see the use cases as well. But today, well, let's just stop there because I think, you know, there are people in the enterprise who are still getting familiar with blockchain terminology. Mm -hmm. And you said permissioned distributed ledger. Yeah. What does that mean? And what is the difference between that and some other distributed ledgers that are out there? Right. So a couple of things. And and even today, it's not just private and public. It's not just permission, mm -hmm. permissionless and permissioned. There's actually a continuum of different use cases that perhaps use a public blockchain to anchor, for example, transactions on a layer one. Right. And it could be, you know, a layer one that you might know, like the Ethereum ecosystem, you know, the Ethereum mm -hmm. mainnet. But it can also be on a layer two. Right. Like the polygons of this world. But it can also be on a layer one that is purposely built for enterprise use cases like Casper, for example, or Hedera and more and more, you know, in 2016, you probably talked to a lot of us and we would say, you know, there's not going to be hundreds of blockchains. There's going to be, you know, there won't be one to rule them off, but there'll be, you know, a few. Um, and you'll see there's actually a lot of diversity. So when you think about a permissioned uh, distributed ledger, it is a network. It's a blockchain network that anyone that's participating in that network is a known entity, right? That's someone that comes in. You have to meet certain criteria from a governance perspective to participate, to run a node, to write into the network. Um, so it's a permissioned uh, everybody that you know, you have status. A permissionless blockchain basically means that anyone can read and write and you don't need to identify what that individual or that organization is reading and writing into the uh, per, uh, uh, public blockchain. Uh -huh. What you see is a lot of work that's happening in the layer twos, and some people even start calling it layer threes, where the, uh, the security right? And the access of the public permissionless blockchain is being leveraged as well for enterprise use cases, 
with governance, for example, being still permissioned. And I have examples and I can certainly take you through it. But when you talk, when you, when I talk about the portfolio under the Hyperledger Foundation umbrella is we now have 13 different projects that address different requirements of what enterprises are done. Mm -hmm. Hyperledger Fabric, you know, continues, as I mentioned, to be a distributed permissioned ledger. Um, then we have projects, for example, like Hyperledger Besu, which came into the foundation in 2019. Um, and Hyperledger Besu actually has two communities. They work very closely together. One is the Hyperledger Besu as an execution client on mainnet, so public blockchain. Hyperledger Besu runs as an execution client on the Ethereum public uh, uh, blockchain. Mm -hmm. And about 15, 14 to 15% of mainnet today is actually running Hyperledger Bezu as a public ex execution client. And that's very important just for diversity's sake on the public uh, Ethereum network. Um, and um, client diversity is really important because if you have everybody running the same client um, and something goes wrong, there's a huge bug in that client, what do you do? The, system, the, the network has to fork or you have to figure out, like, do we push this back? Um, so client diversity is really important. So Hyperledger Bezu has a very, very active and growing mainnet uh, as an execution client. Um, and then it also has uh, Hyperledger Bezu as an EVM, which stands mm -hmm. for the Ethereum Virtual Machine. So you can run a permissioned network using the Bezu EVM, and it has all the characteristics that happen on mainnet. So if you have a token standard, an ERC as it's called in the Ethereum ecosystem, you have an ERC token standard, you can natively run that on a Hyperledger Bezu permissioned network. Mm -hmm. The optionality and whether it's Fabric or Bezu or even Eroha and other projects that we have, the optionality is really important for the enterprises as many of them are trying to figure out uh, where and how they build and how they build to scale not just to scale in transaction numbers, right? Because it's really important, um, but to scale in the longevity of what they're building. Imagine you're a big, you know, a big bank, right? And you're building a digital assets platform, a DAP, um, and you don't want to have to rebuild that thing in, you know, three years time or five years time or 10 years time. Um, so projects like Hyperledger Bezu, which are aligned with mainnet, Ethereum mainnet, will always, for example, always have the best of both worlds uh, as well. So and there's you a lot of to, support. If, if you're an enterprise, you're not faced mm -hmm. with the constant reinvention or creating your own code base. It, it's the same story that you get from a lot of different open source mm -hmm. projects, not just in the uh, blockchain industry, but you, know, you, you do have a very vibrant community of developers mm -hmm. and the uh, underlying code base to whether it's clients or EVMs or whatever mm -hmm. it may be is is always evolving in a way that uh, the enterprise can sort of depend on it to be there, uh, not just now, but in two, three years or five or 10 years, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I always, you know, when I talk about the Hyperledger Foundation, it's really three pillars, right? One is we are developer community, right? Mm -hmm. We are all about our developers, our maintainers, our contributors, the people that build the code, the people that, you know, uh, support the code. Um, and, you know, so, you know, making sure that the developer community has the tooling that they need, that mm -hmm. they have the governance that they need, right? The tools to make them successful. And very importantly, that it is under um, an open governance uh, model, right? Which means that anyone can participate. It's not just one company that basically says, we're going to just build this and we're going to do it based on what we need for our own customer base. So our developer community is really important. 
And so one pillar and the most important is shepherding that open source community um, in the world. The second pillar is education um, and training, right? So mm -hmm. the Hyperledger Foundation, we do a lot of education. You probably took the first course, you know, the, the learning, the intro to blockchain that came out in 2017. I think we've educated close to 300,000 people. I was just at CES the other day and some guy came up to me and he's like, hey, you know, all I do now is Bitcoin, but I want to let you know, if it wasn't for the Hyperledger intro to blockchain course that I took, you know, five years ago, <laughs> I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. So we've actually educated, you know, and that's just one example. And we have uh, certification courses. You know, engineers can be certified on Hyperledger Fabric or other projects as well. Oh. We're just working on Bezu. So education, and part of that is making markets, right? And is how do you bring this technology to the forefront of, of 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 companies that maybe are not at that technology level? Talking about the things and the benefits that blockchain can bring to uh, uh, to an industry, uh, talking about the efficiencies that we can bring to market. So mm -hmm. we have the developer ecosystem and our role in shepherding and making sure that developers have the tools that they need to be successful um, and the support the education and the training. And the third pillar is the commercial ecosystem, because you might have some really great, you know, engineers who are really smart and doing a lot of stuff. Um, and you might have trainings for people to figure out how to use it. But if you don't have a strong commercial ecosystem, someone that a big brand, for example, can pick up the phone and say, hey, you know, I, I, I want to build this out, but I don't have 100 engineers on site to support this. How do I go about doing that? So building that commercial ecosystem. And over the years, you've seen you know the commercial ecosystem you know mature from hey everything is bespoke right if you right. want something in blockchain you got to build it out from scratch um, to hey you know what there's blockchain as a service right there's a lot of blockchain as a service providers mm -hmm. that offer multi-chain you know uh, options um, there's you know what I call middleware service providers so um, the market as they mature we want to make sure that um, there is a, a, a healthy and growing commercial ecosystem on top of these open source projects um, as well. Um, yeah, and I can talk about, you know, yeah. I just want to go back to the, uh, the discussion around Bezu. Um, you mentioned that uh, it's very much tied to the, the permission networks, but it, it's my understanding that the uh, EVM, the Bezu EVM is also being used on several public networks. Isn't that true? Yeah. So, so yeah. So, yeah. so Bezu has essentially think of it. Bezu has two, two sides and, and I'll Quiet tell you why it's really important to enterprises that Bezu is actually in the Hyperledger foundation because of the open governance and the way that we operate at the Linux foundation, all mm -hmm. our open source code bases. So if you look at Hyperledger Bezu, there is one part of Bezu, which I call, which is the mainnet execution client. Right. So, Around 14 to 15% today, as I, I checked earlier today, about 14 to 15% of the Ethereum mainnet, right? So the Ethereum mm. blockchain is already running Hyperledger Bezu as an execution client. Mm -hmm. So since the merge, so since the, um, the Ethereum merge, when it went to proof of stake, mm -hmm. um, the Ethereum uh, uh, blockchain has execution clients and consensus clients, right? So Bezu is one, and right now I think it's number three of the execution clients running running mainnet. We have maintainers um, who are very focused on that, all the releases that come up, all the boxes that need to get fixed, and that needs to be real time. Like you cannot wait, you know, and go through many decisions around do we make this change, right? It needs to support that. Bezu has an uh, the EVM, EVM. permissioned 
maintainer community, right, that is working in parallel to what's happening with mainnet. So they're taking all the great stuff that are happening in mainnet. We'll always have parity. So for example, as I mentioned, the ERC tokens, right? If you have a new token that launches on the Ethereum mainnet, you want to implement that token as in your permission network. Mm -hmm. Bezu will support that as well. But Bezu on the permission side, right, we have a set of maintainers that are really working on critical things that are important to the enterprise. Um, David, you know this, um, banks, you know, when mm -hmm. they're implementing software into their system, right, it's not like, hey, I'm putting a Bezu node here or a Fabric node here, right? It integrates with a lot of different systems. There's a lot of regulatory requirements, you know, that you have to go through, like a 17 SOC, you know, uh, paper before even a bug fix gets pushed through. So accommodating that and making sure that the parity with mainnet continues, yet the innovation gets pushed into the enterprise EVM for Bezu is a very important reason why Bezu is so attractive to enterprises today, um, because once again, that longevity of the project with what's happening in mainnet as well. And that community continues to, to grow. Um, and I'll give you examples of, 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 of uh, private permissionless networks as well, if, you, if you're interested in that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, so all the talk around open source and the governance model, I, I just want to kind of, I, I mentioned earlier that I want to come back to that because when I'm telling people about blockchain, particularly public blockchain, mm -hmm. you know, the, the most common question you get is, you know, wh why do I need blockchain for this? I just have a database or something like that. And I, I just want to kind of try this argument out with you to mm -hmm. see what you think. When you think about open source, you particularly, particularly think about the history of open source. Remember when it first came out, there was a lot of pushback, especially from enterprises. Enterprises were like, are you crazy? We're going we're gonna to adopt some kind of software where everybody can see the source code. And of course, the proponents of open source would say, that's the benefit. Everybody can see it. Let's look at some of the commercial operating systems, the proprietary ones that are on the market right now. And why do you think they have so many security problems? Because there's not enough eyeballs on the source code. And therefore, the source code is insecure. You have all kinds of problems. And people paid a very dear price for some of those problems that were in the source code of some of the uh, proprietary operating systems, you know, compared to, let's say, Linux. So, you know, I think about that. And I think about how that open source nature of Linux and other projects just made them more secure, right? And it's basically because you're, you're, you're outsourcing, you're crowdsourcing the development and of the code and the securing of the code. In many ways, when you think about what public blockchain is, you're outsourcing consensus. You are doing the exact same thing. You're taking the consensus algorithm out of the hands of the one or two people like you have happening with the development of proprietary operating systems at some software company. You're taking that out of the hands of just a handful of people who can't possibly cover the entire landscape or code base and keep it secure. And you're putting it out there so that everybody participates in the process in a way that makes it more secure. And a couple of times I've explained that to people and they're like, and then they come back, oh, yeah, but proprietary software isn't that much more less secure than open source. So we get back into that debate, but I'm still, I still think there's a parallel there. I don't yeah. know what you think about that argument. Yeah, I think in decentralized technologies, open source is one. There's yep. no doubt. You cannot have a decentralized system without having 
uh, you know, access to the code, right? And, and being able to look at it, being able to, uh, you know, make suggestions to it. Um, so I think, you know, and, and it's two arguments, you, you know, you asked the, you know, is blockchain and open source needed? And there's many use cases. Look, David, there are so many use cases that people went down the route of saying, I'm going to build something with blockchain when they should have just built it with a, 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 a Oracle a, database. A, a, yeah. An Oracle <laughs> database or a database for sure. Have no doubt about it. Right. Um, and you know, very often when I joined the when I joined Hyperledger in 2017, we actually used to get those calls. I would get on the call, um, and you know, people would be like, "Hey, you know, I just came out of a C-level meeting, and you know, they said build something in blockchain," and I'd be like, "No, no, 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 that's not, <laughs> that's not the way to do it." Um, so you know, that's one point on the open source thing, and I truly just believe, like, if decentralized, anything that is going to be decentralized has to be open sourced. There's a big difference between open source of you can look at the code, right? Yeah. And you can see it versus you can actually become a contributing member to the governance of the code mm -hmm. as well. Um, and I've seen in even in the public blockchain space on all the layer ones and some of the layer twos as well, you see the work that they're doing towards being more open about the code development and governance of it, because ultimately it's going to be very important from a security perspective, mm -hmm. from an audit perspective, from a regulatory perspective, right? If, you know, if regulation, you know, reg regulators are going to look at this and say, who essentially has control of the code? Is it two guys in the basement in Singapore? And how is that okay? Um, I, it's a joke because I believe there's no basements in Singapore, they're all garages, but that's what I mean. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, you know, there's, you know, so it, it needs to be not just open source. It needs to be openly governed. But can't um, the same, can't the same be said for consensus? Like, can't you say, Hey, look, this is a better system because mm -hmm. it's decent. It's all equally decentralized. And therefore, you know, you don't have one or two people who are in control of the data, right? Like that's the, mm -hmm. that, that's why Bitcoin happened, right? Because sure somebody was incentivized to disintermediate the banks because whatever the bank said went like you, mm -hmm. bank said x it was x the bank said y it didn't matter where as a distributed ledger right. kind of disintermediated right. that whole idea so it seems to me like in both cases you're mm -hmm. kind of saying hey let's turn over mm -hmm. the 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 sanity of this whole system mm -hmm to a, uh, a greater number of people in the way that no single party controls right. it. And, and I mean, and this is this is why, you know, consortium based blockchain networks um, are important and, you know, not mm -hmm. consortium in, in maybe in the traditional sense of what you think about a consortium, but um, where the governance and the consensus still has the, you know, the ability of who, 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 who is, who is governing, right? And who's, who's, part of that consensus, you know, it's not just mm -hmm. everybody that shows up. So um, I'll give you examples of things that we are seeing um, in the ecosystem that I think are very promising because it's actually governments and government entities that are thinking about leveraging the core blockchain principles of decentralization, right? Um, and permissionless access, um, but creating basically utilities that are bringing what to the market? They're bringing efficiencies. They're bringing uh, liquidity into the market. So I'll give you examples of that. So down in Latin America, for example, the Inter-American Development Bank um, have uh, worked with the community in Latin America and the Caribbeans um, to build out a platform called LACChain. Um, LACChain, think of LACChain 
uh, or LACnet um, as a layer one, a public utility blockchain network, mm -hmm. right? So all everyone can see, everyone can participate, anyone can, you know, right? It's an open blockchain, just like Ethereum, um, just like Bitcoin. Um, but they have embedded governance because there is a requirement, right? Because they're or they're you know go, they're running government use cases around digital identity, um, and they have embedded governance into that network. They're using Hyperledger Besu to create that environment. So it's a public utility layer one blockchain, and the governance of that layer one blockchain, which is called LACnet, mm -hmm. um, is permissioned. And the governments and the participating, you know, members of that of Lackchain um, are, you know, so you know who is participating in that as well, right? Uh -huh. And that's important for that. That's happening in uh, in uh, Europe with EPSI, the European Blockchain Services Institute. They're doing a lot a European based um, funded project, a layer one blockchain utility blockchain that is per, uh, permissionless, that has permissioned governance um, alongside of it. And they use Hyperledger Besu as well. And we have many of those use cases. So it's that optionality that I think is, you know, continues to be really important. Um, yeah. It seems to me like uh, speak when you speak, you're talking about some of the nation states here, you know, very large governments. Um, the one pattern I've observed over the years, uh, over the last year where uh, there have been some proof of concept projects around the idea of uh, digital asset oriented national bank networks, things like that, right? Like mm -hmm. almost exclusively, like if you think about national banks today, they currently run private permissioned networks. Mm -hmm. They're not blockchains, they're, they're the existing financial rails yeah. that everybody's familiar with. But where those experiments are being conducted, it seems to me like most of those experiments are looking to somewhat replicate the permissioned nature of the existing networks because that's what makes them feel most comfortable um, well, or, and, or, or or there's a blend of some sort like it's very as you were pointing out you know mm -hmm. you've got this permission the governance piece mm -hmm. and maybe there's some permissionless uh, component to it i mean a lot of the reasons is there is no regulatory clarity of what they can and cannot do and i think <laughs> at least they, not in the u.s there isn't yeah there, it's coming out but you know it's 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 a long term um yeah so they do need to you know you can't run a business without you know observing regulatory requirements um, sure. for sure but what 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 in but there are platforms right that are using blockchain right take a look at you know jp coin for example right take a look at you know some of the platforms that goldman sachs has out there with their dApps. um mm -hmm. And others, and I can go on and on, um, where um, you know they they are using blockchain, but for what, right? They're not creating coins and speculative, you know, tokens to investment. They mm. are once again trying to bring efficiencies to the market, right? And efficiencies for these banks, and ultimately for the benefit of the consumers, whether it's individuals or the companies, right? That are moving money around, is efficiencies. Um, is um, you know creating 24 by 7 markets, right? If you've ever had to send money cross border mm -hmm. um, from you know the U.S. to India or the U.S. to Brazil or whatever, you know the pain of doing that. Imagine that at the business level, right? So creating efficiencies in the market, creating 24 by 7 access. Um, Liquidity, having actual liquidity be able to move around. So if you go and you buy something from a supplier in, you know, in Southeast Asia, um, and how long does it take 
for that supplier once again to get access to the money, right? The, the money's been agreed to, the, the, the materials are on the move. And what do they want? They want the money so they can go and reinvest and go buy more sure. stuff to make more stuff and make more money, right? So that liquidity is just locked up, right? So once again, it's about efficiencies to the market. They're not looking to tokenize things because they're going to make, you know, they're going to sell, you know, sell, you know, NFTs, mm -hmm. and, you know, on it, right? They're looking for efficiencies on on um, on the tokenization of the markets, um, and that's where I think you're seeing a lot of, I think, the important work that's happening because. You know, financial infrastructure is getting very old, right? And and I'm not just talking about, you know, something breaks down and nobody knows how to, you know, code in COBOL. I'm talking about the actual rails are not keeping pace to what the digital economy needs. Um, and so you see some of the largest banks looking at blockchain, right? And mm -hmm. whether they call it distributed ledger or blockchain or whatever, whatever. they want to yeah. call it to just make their business make more money and you know be more efficient at it and hopefully the consumers win out on that. I think you missed one of the a third benefit and mm -hmm. you probably know about it it just mm -hmm. just didn't cross your mind while you're spitting it all out mm -hmm. is is the cost. You know, so um you know, yes, the liquidity is so the point about digital economy is very important. Mm -hmm. The reason that that guy that that the merchant's product was on the move before they had access to the funds that compensate them for that sale or whatever is because of the digital economy. Like, like the, the, the deal was closed on the e-commerce form on some website and it was a done deal. Uh, there was no opportunity, you know, to have sort of a um, balanced delay on both sides of product delivery and the money. So you got to get the money to, the money has to, the flow of the money has to catch up to the delivery of the product. I think that's what you're pointing out. Mm -hmm. But you also have the cost of the cross-border uh, remittance that's happening, right? And so the best example I, I know of a proof of concept is between um, Shinhan Bank in, uh, in North Korea, I mean, in South Korea, and, um, and Standard Bank in South Africa, where they did a proof of concept. And what it showed was like, uh, not only was it, the 24 seven hour nature just happened. It's like in, in seconds or, you know, uh, minimally a minute or something like that. So you had instant access. Um, but you also, it was also the cost of conducting that transaction wasn't, you know, $35 or whatever it is. If you go out onto some, mm -hmm. one of the existing rails. So you, you don't have the delay. You don't have the cost. The cost was like under a penny. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, I think about the volume, you talk about efficiency, I think of the, mm -hmm. the volume of those types of transactions that are taking place um, across all financial institutions today. And let's roll the national banks into all of that. Mm -hmm. right. And the opportunity to just strip an incredible amount of cost out of the entire you know, ecosystem, when we want to call it that, is just, it, it, it's mm -hmm. mind boggling. And so you can understand why uh, JP Morgan's doing JP, JPM right. coin because like, look what they, they are experiencing the benefits of the reduced cost and the 24 seven access to liquidity and, and, and the speed of the whole system. Right. And it's the, you know, that trust, you know, and when people say, well, couldn't you do that with the blockchain? You could, but you need to have those third party intermediaries and who trusts which database yeah. and how do you reconcile the database? Right. And it all goes back to 
what the technology does, not how the technology is being, you know, mm -hmm. constantly talked about in the media, that it's, you know, cryptocurrencies and it's just, you know, speculative uh, uh, funding. So I think if you go back to the question of like, why use a database versus a blockchain, David, you just answered it, right? Why are oh, these sure, yeah. big banks and government agencies, for example, and things trying to, you know, just build new infrastructure that can actually scale um, and continue to scale to what the market needs. And whoever does that right, right, and the partners and the collaboration that do it right, they're going to just, you know, move faster in the market. Um, and ultimately, you know, I think that's what well, enter all enterprises want. Well, if you get a few banks saving $25 at scale across mm -hmm. millions and millions of transactions, those banks are just going to have a, a competitive advantage over the banks that aren't doing it, it strictly on the basis yeah. of uh, strictly on the basis of cost. There's two ways you can make a profit, right? Reduce your costs or increase your revenue. Uh, they're both equally valuable, and and this one is yeah. a you know major league cost reducer. Yeah. I want to switch gears because we talked a lot about you know the pros and cons of hyperledger, what hyperledger is. Uh, the open source nature, uh, you know, different projects that you have going, benefits of permission versus permissionless mm -hmm. networks and all that. You've got some announcements. You, you've made a, you've had a couple things happen. You've got mm -hmm. a, a new announcement just this week, um, something called Web3J. So let's mm -hmm. talk about some of those. What, yeah. What so, you know, and I'll take a step back, right? Because if you think about, you know, and I, I mentioned Fabric, I mentioned Bezu, it all has mm -hmm. another uh, project that's been graduated as a distributed ledger. And when you start thinking about actually implementing blockchain networks, you know, let's go back to the big banks, right? There are other things that are required um, in order for these systems uh, to talk to one another. So, for example, interoperability becomes a very important uh, aspect of these networks, right? It mm -hmm. is not one network to rule them all. It's networks of networks. So how do you move these assets securely, right, from one network to another that might have different DLT frameworks. They're using different technologies. So if you look at the timeline of the Hyperledger Foundation from 2016 to today to 2023, you're see, you see projects coming in that address the production needs of these networks mm -hmm. and implementations. So we have a project, for example, called Hyperledger Cacti, and Cacti was started in 2020, uh, called Cactus at the time. Um, and it really came from, you know, these big companies, uh, Accenture, Fujitsu, IBM, that were building these networks, right? Building these networks for their customer bases and interoperability between networks became important, right? You're running an R3 Corda network and I'm running a Hyperledger Bezu network. How do our networks interact with one another? So interoperability becomes really key. So Hyperledger uh, Cacti is one of those projects, and we just graduated. We have a project lifecycle where these um, enterprise code bases go through a project lifecycle, and it's really important for enterprise code, right, that it goes through that process. So Hyperledger Cacti just graduated um, into our project umbrella as a graduated project. Um, and that's great to see. And why did they do it? Because they have adoption. There's users using it. There is a need and new people are contributing and developing. Um, another project um, that's just graduated in October as well is Hyperledger Firefly. Um, so Hyperledger Firefly is essentially, you know, a, a super node, but it's a middleware. If you think about having to build out these 
blockchain systems. You have to build out the digital assets. You have to do the connections into your legacy systems, right? You have to do a lot of things, identity, you have to do everything. Um, and so Hyperledger Firefly is that building block. And you can say, once again, I am using uh, Fabric or I'm using Bezu or I'm using, you know, Polygon or Avalanche, right? It, it doesn't matter which distributed mm -hmm. ledger platform you're using a tool like Hyperledger Firefly really gets people to go into play. And so over the years, we've adopted and brought in um, projects that really address the needs of the community. Um, last year, we had a project come in called Hyperledger Solang, which is essentially a Solidity compiler for Substrate, all right, and this year, so just this week, we announced Web3J, um, and it's a Java and Android library for working with smart contracts. This uh, Web3J has been in the ecosystem for a long time. I believe it started in 2016, probably around the same time as the Hyperledger Foundation. Um, a huge adoption. Um, and the, uh, the maintainers, uh, a company called Web3 Labs, um, understand that for Web3J to get further ingrained into the enterprise space, right? To bring more contributors into that, that uh, bringing it to a foundation like the Hyperledger Foundation is a good home for it. So the we're J stands for Java, that. right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. It, it's a, a Java-based uh, Android library. And you, you know the enterprise, they love Java. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the key is it's like, if you want enterprises to adopt some technology, mm -hmm. you're gonna have to find a way for them to have kind of an easy on-ramp to that technology. Yeah. And so for those enterprises, and there are a great many of them who are mm -hmm. heavily invested in Java, if you think back to the days of all the, you know, J2EE servers and all that, uh, um, you know, bridging Java to the blockchain world just seems like a very natural thing that uh, enterprises will appreciate having something like, uh, you know, uh, an open source project dedicated to. Yeah. So Web3J, you know, it's, you know, it's a library, it's a tool, right? Tooling. Mm -hmm. How do you get people to onboard, right? The, the, you know, the concept is you don't have to start from scratch anymore, right? right. You don't have to download, you know, a, a DLT and start from scratch. There is tooling that is built now on top of it. And at the Hyperledger Foundation, what our goal is, is to find basically the best technologies that we believe in the long run win in the enterprise space, right? That we can bring the enterprise developers to, um, that they can contribute, they can participate. Um, and that's kind of, you know, the bet that we made in 2019 when we brought Hyperledger Basu over. I think, David, I've told you the story before, like, you know, if I didn't physically get black eyes by myself and at the time our executive director, <laughs> Brian Bellendorf, got, you know, black eyes about bringing, you know, an Ethereum distributed ledger project into the community, but the the need was for the enterprise, right? They were saying, we need this and we need something that we can collaborate on that can be, you know, governed under Hyperledger, um, that gives a space for growth and enterprise exception. And then that third pillar, right, which is the commercial ecosystem that we have commercial ecosystem support of these technologies. So even like Web3J, what we're hoping is that you, you could be an end user and you can use a tool like this, but if you wanna like call up a vendor and say, hey, I need help with this, that you know, there's going right. to be in our vendor directory member companies that support Web3J, that support you know, uh, Fabric, that support Bezu, uh, and you know, it, makes it, it makes those uh, code projects really usable in the enterprise space right. for sure. Typical open source commercialization model. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, uh, Daniela, I just want to thank mm -hmm. you so much for your time. No I know uh, you're very busy, you got a, wearing multiple hats, I heard. You know, you've mm -hmm. got 
your job as the uh, um, uh, executive director there at the Hyperledger Foundation, but you also are heavily involved in, in the Linux Foundation, which is kind of the, the bigger <laughs> umbrella of all of this. So thank you very much for your time. Not a problem. There's great work happening at the Linux Foundation, certainly at the Hyperledger Foundation. And it's because of our community and our enterprise uh, members and the communities who contribute that we're able to do what we do. So thank you for uh, giving us the time. Always a pleasure to have you and look forward to the next time we get together. We've been speaking with Daniela Barbosa. She is the executive director of the Hyperledger Foundation. And you will be able to look at the uh, QR codes right after we're done talking here to see where it is you can find her and find the Hyperledger Foundation. You'll also see some QR codes for where you can find Blockchain Journal and all of our other great video content. We're available not only on the blockchainjournal.com website, but also on YouTube. And all of our uh, podcast content is available in an audio only format through the various podcasting services, Apple Podcasts, uh, YouTube Music, etc. So you can find us just about anywhere. We like to meet our audience where our audience is. We don't make you come to us. Thank you very much for joining us. Stay tuned for more videos.